Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The House and Senate are both in session this week, but the House is only around for this week and next before taking another two-week recess, which brings Congress right up to the next federal funding deadline. If this feels unpleasantly familiar... Well, it does to some of the members, too. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And yeah, I mean, it seems like every time they push out another CR deadline, it comes around pretty quick. Right. It seems like we're reliving a bad television episode over and over again, right? Every few months, we seem to be saying, here's the next deadline, and then... Sure enough, here another deadline comes. So there is a lot of concern right now, even though they haven't really done much, and that is part of the concern, that they haven't really moved much at all on these 12 appropriations bills that they've been talking about, of course, all through last year, past blowing the October 1st deadline, and now here we are uh, heading our way to the March 1st deadline. One of the people that I talked to about this was Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. He is one of the lawmakers that worries that they're going to end up basically where they were at the last deadline. Can they really get these 12 appropriations bills passed at a time when the House margin is even thinner than it was under House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? Uh, here's what some of the things that he said to me. Speaker Johnson definitely doesn't want to shut the government down. That's a positive. But it is a lot of work to get done. We have to do the supplemental, and we really need to do that before the Senate leaves for recess. And we need to get the appropriations bill done by early March. I believe we will, but your question was, do you have any concerns about it? And the answer is, yeah, I have concerns. So, yes, he is concerned. Now, Senator Kane says he's become smart enough not to try to predict what the House will do, but there is clearly a lot of worry on the Senate side what the House will do. Uh, House Speaker uh, Johnson likes to cite that they have close to 80 percent of the bills done. Uh, but what he does not mention when he cites what's already been done is the fact that there were many bills uh, in the past year that the House was unable to even get past the procedural step of the rule to get it to the floor. So it's really hard to see exactly what has changed. We'll have to see if uh, the conservatives back off a little bit on him or whether they intensify and put more pressure on this speaker who's really still feeling his way around this appropriations process. Yeah, you want if they understand how normal people look at all this and what the reaction is from the outside. All right. Given everything that's going on with Ukraine, with the Israel situation, and of course, the whole debate on the border crisis, is the budget even in their minds as they return this week? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I think it's on the back burner, oddly enough, even though this deadline is looming within just a little over a month. The supplemental, the huge foreign aid package, along with this border deal that they've been trying to reach, has really sucked all the oxygen out of the U.S. Senate right now. And even though there is work behind the scenes in connection with the appropriations bills, uh, unfortunately uh, for a lot of people who want to see more progress on the budget, uh, this is going to take some time, and I think it's going to eat up a lot more time this week, uh, especially because we had this mini-drama last week where Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated at one point that they might have to separate the deal on the border with Ukraine, and he has been a big supporter, as you know, of Ukraine funding, but then he kind of walked it back the next day and said he's still hoping for a deal. So they're still trying to grind out these negotiations on the border deal and still try to secure this huge, over $100 billion 
billion foreign aid package, including the money for Israel and Ukraine. And I think that's going to dominate this week as in the background we try to get more progress on these appropriations bills. Yeah, and it's a weird effect that the Trump trials and the Trump emergence, you know, from New Hampshire and Iowa seems to have gravitational effect on Congress, which is a little weird because he's not in office and they still are. Right. It's really amazing when you think of the fact that he is not in elected office. He hasn't even really been uh, made the nominee of the Republican Party, although it's certainly going that way. But he has essentially frozen the House on this issue. The House Republicans have basically indicated that no matter what deal comes out, they are likely to reject it. And we still don't even know the full details of what's going to come out of this deal. Now, the Senate supporters of the agreement hope that it'll come out this week and that they will eventually get a vote on it and that they can somehow put some pressure on the House by showing that it's a real bipartisan deal and that there are parts of the agreement that everybody can go for. But uh, former Vice President... Former President Trump has indicated he's not going for any kind of deal. He just thinks that it's going to be a a victory for President Biden. So it's really hard to see that this would even get beyond the Senate, even if it gets that far. Crazy. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And switching gears here for a moment, there is effort from some members on the Hill to try to get more federal employees back in their offices more frequently. Right. And one of those people is Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. She has been very active in trying to get federal employees back into their offices over the last several months. And really, ever since the uh, pandemic started to wind down, her latest tactic is essentially to try to shame the agency heads of various federal agencies. Uh, This past week, she uh, shouted out about a variety of things, including the fact that, of course, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was out. He was sick for several days before the president knew about it. Uh, She basically says there needs to be more accountability on the part of agency heads. She wants every agency head's schedule posted. So in her words, that taxpayers know who is showing up for work. Another example she points to is the head of GSA, who spent a large time away from Washington in Missouri. Uh, Basically, she wants to get all of these agency heads on the same page and then at the lower level is still putting a lot of pressure on these federal departments to try to get more and more people back. Uh, As we've talked about, the White House has tried to make a push to get people back as well, but it still hasn't moved as quickly as a lot of the advocates, at least on Capitol Hill, had hoped for. And it's interesting because the Office of Management and Budget, that is the White House, you know, have issued reports on how effective teleworking is and how the level of teleworking has gone down slightly in 23 versus 22. So I think there's kind of two minds there. One, you know, from a management point of view, I think they'd like people back. But on the other hand, the unions are pushing back and they have support from the unions otherwise politically. So it's a little bit of a dilemma, I think. Yeah, I think it's almost kind of turned upside down because uh, you well know all of these battles over the years of trying to get agencies to be more active with telework. Uh, Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly has been one of those who's been very active in trying to push agencies to make sure that people could work for home. And this was just a huge issue over the last several years. And then the pandemic now coming out of it has really changed things. As you point out, it's very interesting how everything is kind of flipped around. 
And a final issue coming up this week is the Senate Finance Committee is kind of getting deep into the technology knickers of the IRS. (laughs) That is for sure. We're talking now about IRS barcodes, and it sounds like it's something real simple. You know, hey, I go to the grocery store, it happens all the time. But there are no barcodes in connection with IRS filings. And when you think of the incredible amount of paperwork and electronic financial records that go through the IRS, it is pretty amazing that there isn't a more efficient way to get things through. So there is bipartisan legislation coming through the Senate Finance Committee that would essentially require barcodes on everything. This has been introduced by Senators Tom Carper of Delaware and Todd Young of Indiana. And what they really want to do is get barcodes on everything so that uh, this huge amount of paperwork, because as you know, the IRS still deals with a lot of paper, would at least allow them to move things through more quickly. Because as we've talked about over the years, you know, whether it's bad signatures or, or things on paperwork that just can't be figured out, there's a lot of plugs in the whole system that hold things up. Now, on the brighter side, the IRS has been making a lot of progress related to to that backlog that they had during the pandemic. Uh, But this is just another example of lawmakers trying to nudge the IRS along, of course, also with that big amount of billions of dollars that was approved recently so that the IRS can uh, modernize a lot of its IT equipment. Yeah, I think a lot of their ability to get those backlogs done is brute force. That is just hiring bodies to process it by hand. Right. There's just really not enough people right now. And the IRS has acknowledged that. And then when you combine that with the technological issues, it just still creates a lot of problems. Now, there's been, again, a lot of progress in the last year or so. Certainly, uh, this is something that we're all thinking about as the uh, taxes come due in the next coming months. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.